every time I come up here, there's always like a little bit of like, and I think it's just because of the weight of what is, um, just the weight of the word and, and the weight of um, preaching the word. And um, so bear with me if uh, there's a little catch in my voice until I get going. But um, I just want to say that I have loved going through Mark with you guys. It's been really fun and, and awesome and um, just being able to dig into this book really deep and just see the uh, complexities and see that how God is restoring his wayward people. Um, I'd encourage you guys each week, uh, just take some time and read through the passage that we're going to be going through the next um, Sunday, just so you kind of have an idea of what is going to be preached and, and what we're going to be talking about. I think it's really helpful and uh, it's, it's something that I've enjoyed doing. So there's no like, hey, you looked ahead or anything. Uh, just, just go ahead and read through. Um, but I say that um, to kind of set up uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, last week, we saw that Jesus and his disciples were in Bethsaida, where Jesus had healed the blind man in a really unique way. Um, and then they started making their way through the villages and the towns of Caesarea and Philippi. And Jesus asked the question, who do, you, who do people think that I am? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples gave a variety of answers, but it kind of culminated with Peter saying that he knows that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And the main thing that I hope that we get from this um, time this morning is that Jesus came and suffered many things so that we could have life. And because of this, we also suffer so we can experience that life. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Uh, dear Lord, <clears throat> I thank you for your word, and I thank you for Christ, and I thank you for um, Christ and his suffering, uh, because without it, uh, we do not have life, but with it, we do. Lord, I pray that uh, the rest of this time you would give me clarity, and that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, and that your words would be clear. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for what you've done and who you are. Amen. <clears throat> so the first thing that I hope we notice in this chapter, or in this uh, section, is that Jesus came to suffer. Right? Point number one, Jesus came to suffer. In verse 31, and I'll just read it really quick so it's kind of fresh in our heads. Um, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. There's two words that kind of pop out to me at least in that first verse and that's the word teach and the word must. We see that Jesus teaches that he must suffer. We already know that the disciples know he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. I think any time, as a teacher, right, any time that I step in front of my classroom and I'm teaching my students something, there's kind of two camps that my students are going to fall into. It's either they don't know what I'm teaching or they think they know, but they need to unlearn something and learn it the correct way. I myself experience this all the time with my father-in-law. I will go out uh, and he's like this master builder, craftsman guy and uh, he recently built this like two or 3,000 square foot barn on his property. And so I'd go and I'd help him and we'd put in poles and put up trusses and all this stuff. And 
all of those things I have no idea how to do. And so a lot of that is him teaching me, hey, Ben, this is how you do this. Hey, Ben, this is how you do that. There were also some times where we would go, and especially when we were clearing out uh, the area where the barn was going to be, we were going through a chainsaws, and I'm like, Charles, I know how to use a chainsaw. Come on. So I'm just going through like willy-nilly, cutting down stuff, chopping things up. And at that, that point, I fell into the camp of, I have to unlearn what I think I know. And he pulls me aside and he's like, hey, hey, Ben, there's like kind of a, a way you should do this that's safe. Maybe like those things over there that you, you put on your legs, the chaps, maybe you should wear those because you might cut your leg off. And uh, so I had to unlearn how to use a chainsaw, how I grew up using a chainsaw and relearn how to do that. And we see the disciples here are in one of these two camps. They, they, they know Christ is the Messiah. Peter has confessed this. Um, they either think they know what, the, what being the Messiah means, or they, they don't know what being the Messiah means. I would argue they think they know. Um, they probably have all kinds of ideas of what being the Messiah means. In, and, and none of those have to do with this suffering. In about 30 years, we're going to see the Jewish insurrection with Rome, uh, where, where uh, the Jews and, and the Romans fought. Rome will literally siege Jerusalem. And, and that happens in just 30 years, so there's no doubt going to be tensions that are starting to boil up between the Jews and the Romans. And so they probably have this idea, and we know many of the Jews had this idea, that Jesus was this Messiah that's going to come and lead them victoriously, uh, maybe put them in a position of power. But this idea of suffering, which is highlighted very heavily in, in the Old Testament, was not necessarily one that they were going to be focusing on. Being the Messiah means, and so here's that second word, right? Jesus taught them what being the Messiah means. And then being the Messiah means he must suffer. Not, not that he will suffer, or not that he can suffer, or not that he has to suffer, or not that, hey, it's looking like I'm going to be suffering here, I'm going to be rejected, but that he must suffer. Why? Why must Jesus suffer? Because we can't not sin. Because we cannot fulfill the law. Jesus comes and he must suffer for us. For us to be in relationship with God, Jesus must suffer. He must fulfill the law. He's the only one that can fulfill the law and satisfy God's wrath. Jesus has to suffer. Um, so then Peter takes Jesus aside and he's like, hey, Jesus, come here. Like, <laughs> let me teach you something. You don't have to suffer. <laughs> like, he, it literally says Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus starts teaching them that he is going to suffer many things. He'll be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, um, that he'll die, and then he'll be uh, raised to life. And I think, just kind of a little quick side note here, I think maybe Peter and the disciples were, the disciples were so appalled. I, I'm, I, I'm just kind of guessing here. They were so appalled at Jesus saying, like, hey, the, the Son of God, right, the Son of Man is going to suffer. They're like, well, no, <laughs> you don't have to suffer. That They just skip over the fact that he says he's going to be raised again. Like Jesus tells him, I'm going to be raised to life again. And, and Peter pulls him aside and he says, 
he says, Jesus, you do not have to suffer. He rebukes him. I don't know exactly what Peter's motivation was for this. Maybe it was out of love for Jesus. Maybe Peter doesn't want to see this person that he's built this relationship with suffer and go through these things. Um, Maybe it was a a selfish reason. Maybe he wants a Messiah that's going to put him and his people in power. Or maybe it was simply that he was scared. He knows as a follower of Jesus, if Jesus is going to be rejected by these people, if he is going to be crucified on a cross, he doesn't know that right now, but he's going to die, then Peter too is going to face these things. But whatever the reason is, he rebukes Jesus. Now again, I've told you many times, I'm a teacher, where I teach, I've been, I've been cussed out by my students, I've broken up fights and been like hit in the face, so, so many things, and I'm, I'm kind of cool with all that, but I've never been like rebuked by a student until this one time. I had a student who was a really bright, bright student, bright individual, and he never missed any work, and there was one day where I gave a test, and he fell asleep, passed out on his desk, didn't take the test. So I graded him, and I'm passing him back the next day, and uh, this, this student, his name is Johnny, you, you'll never meet him, but he, uh, he, he was like, where's my test, Mr. Nielsen? And the students are all like, oh, Johnny's not turning in something? What? And they're like starting to rag on him. He was so embarrassed. And he goes, I, and I said, hey, Johnny, like, I'm trying to like do it really discreet. I'm like, hey, like, you, you fell asleep yesterday, didn't take the test. No, I didn't. You lost my test. You're a terrible teacher. You're unorganized. This whole building's terrible. This Columbus City Schools is the worst thing in the world, and it's your fault. I was like, what? Like, I've never disciplined this kid in my entire, entire year that he was there. He was always my, like, star student, and I'm just, I'm being rebuked by him. The only other time I was that mad at a student was when he saw a picture of my wife on my desk and said, said some things. I was like, uh, Johnny, <laughs> let's go in the hall. But I was quite literally rebuked. Now, I'm not trying to compare my relationship with Johnny to Jesus' relationship with P- Peter, but there's some similarities in that I am Johnny's teacher. I'm in a position of authority. And even besides the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, right? He, he, was, he created the world. Um, he's Peter's teacher, right? And Peter rebukes him. So Jesus pulls him aside. And, uh, well, he, he looks at Peter and immediately he rebukes Peter back. He says, um, get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but I would not want Jesus to look at me and call me Satan. Um, and, and it even says that he does this and his, that all the other disciples see this. Uh, so in the... So if we kind of rewind and we go back to the beginning of Mark, when Jesus is in the desert, we see Jesus be tempted by Satan. And in uh, Luke 4.13, the end of that section, it says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So they're saying right there, Mark is letting us know that Satan is going to be coming back and tempting Jesus again. We see that here, right? Through Peter, Satan is tempting Jesus, saying, hey, you're the Messiah, but you, you don't have to suffer these things. Jesus, you, you know how powerful you are. You, you don't have to suffer these things. 
there's this temptation here. But Jesus, being focused on things of God, quickly rebukes Satan, says, Get away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, being focused on things of man, doesn't want to see Jesus suffer these things. Quick little side note here. I think that we can learn something from uh, Jesus here. I mean, we can always learn something from Jesus, but right here in how he handles this temptation, how quickly he acts on it, how quickly he says, get behind me, Satan. I don't know exactly what uh, you all are being tempted with. I know what I am tempted with on a daily basis. And I, I see Jesus and how quickly he acts against this temptation, how quickly he says, get behind me, Satan, and, and, and moves on from it. And I think that we can learn something there in how to approach the times that we are tempted, right? We, we see that temptation. We face that temptation. We say, no, this is from Satan. We go to the Word. Uh, we, we go to God. We worship God. We focus our minds on things of God. Peter is operating in this point because he's focused on the world, and, and Jesus is operating the way he is because he is focused on things of God. Because Jesus, being focused on things of God, faced this immense suffering, right? He must face it, and he did, and, we, and he teaches us that. We too are called to focus on things of God, thus being brought into suffering. Verse 34 says, And calling to the crowd, uh, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take, and take up his cross and follow me. And Jesus is telling us there that if we are going to follow him, we too are going to face suffering. We're going to deny ourselves and face suffering. Jesus tells us that we're going to deny ourselves. And what exactly does this mean to deny ourselves? Well, we, as unsaved as non-Christian people, if we have not put our faith in Christ, before we put our faith in Christ, are innately, even, even as people who have our faith in Christ, we are bent towards sin. We are innately sinful people. We want an easy, comfortable life. Peter's words here speak to us. We hear Peter's words, and they, they sound sweet to us, right? Hey, you don't have to, you don't have to suffer. Um, I don't know exactly what Peter said, but I'm assuming it was along the lines of that. Uh, we are bent towards sin. If we're left to our own devices, we will pursue the things of this world. So when we deny ourselves, we quite literally have to deny that initial sinful, innate sinfulness that we have. We have to take on a new self. And that's what happens when we put our faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit and, and we start to get this new self. We are denying that old self and we are getting this new self. Um, we follow Jesus in this self-denial. There's a difference, though, between us and Jesus. Jesus has way more to deny, right? And he doesn't have to, to save his life, right? Jesus is not denying these things to save his life. Jesus is denying these things, denying his, his, his position, which he never had to give up, right? We, we, we violated the law. We sinned. He chose to come down. But he is doing this for us. We are denying these things to save our life. That denial is taking on that new self through the Holy Spirit. Our culture 
preaches this self-satisfaction for now, right? Everything now. Satisfy us now. We have drive-thrus. We have apps on our phones. We, or, we can order food whenever we're hungry. We can order things off Amazon whenever we want. I'm not saying these things are innately sinful things, but in our culture, it's ingrained. Get, get satisfied and get satisfied now. Which is Christians, we practice self-denial for the future. This self-denial, this denying of ourself is, is, is for a relationship with God and a future of eternity in the glory of God. But it doesn't stop at self-denial. It's also taking on suffering. We are told that we are supposed to take up our cross. Jesus tells us to take up our cross. Now, um, I was listening to R.C. Sproul and and he highlights a really, really good point that I think we, we need to see. This isn't some like editorial where Mark looked back and saw that Jesus died on the cross. And so then he like put like Jesus said something along these lines, but he put this in. This is Jesus speaking to the culture that they're in. The cross is the most instrumental, uh, was used by Romans so often as a form of punishment for uh, breaking like Roman law and It was something that was carried out by the Romans. Uh, This cross was a symbol of a lot of different things. So Jesus saying that you need to take up your cross resonated with the people that were listening, resonated with the disciples. It was common. It was something that was used all the time. Uh, They knew what went along with taking up your cross. Uh, I really liked the way Piper breaks down four elements of what the cross would mean then and how they translate to us now. Uh, These four elements are official opposition, shame, suffering, and death. If if we as Christians are going to take up our cross, we need to be prepared to face official opposition, shame, suffering, and death. When I was reading that official opposition, I was just kind of brainstorming what are are some things we see now today that... um, that people have faced official opposition, right? Maybe from the government or from their work or, or whatever it is. It makes me think of the Canadian preacher that was arrested on the highway for holding church service. Um, it makes me think of the teacher in Virginia when uh, school was, or, or when there was going to be a law that was possibly going to be passed that would require him to refer to um, transgender students with their preferred pronoun. He voluntarily went to the board meeting and said, as as a teacher, I lo- in, in such a gracious way, as a teacher, I love my students. And in loving my students, I can't refer to them in a way that God did not create them. And he um, voluntarily spoke his mind at that meeting and was put on administrative leave. These people are willing to face official opposition for their faith. Uh, shame. We, as Christians, will have beliefs that our culture is going to think are shameful, right? As Christians, we are going to have beliefs that our culture will view as shameful. If you speak those beliefs, if we speak those truths, you will be looked upon with an un, a misplaced shame. Uh, suffering. The cross was an instrument for suffering. Your legs were broken. If we just look at, look at Jesus on the cross, right? Legs broken, whipped before he, he had to go. Um, he, and, and part of that shame was carrying your cross to the point of your execution, 
where, where you have your sentencing and you, you then have to carry that cross to the point of your execution. Um, uh, his, the spear in his side, the, the crown of thorns on his head, um, j- just the, the mere like suffocation that's happening slowly as he's stretched out. The nails in his hands and his feet are just a form of, uh, of suffering. As Christians, we need to be prepared to face suffering. If we are facing official opposition and if we are facing this, this unfair, misplaced shame, but no doubt a, a shaming from the culture that we're in, we will face suffering. That is, that is, that is not something that is pleasant. And then we also need to be obedient to the point of death. We see Jesus was obedient to the point of death in which he died on the cross. And as Christians, if we are going to pick up our cross and and bear that cross, we need to be obedient to the point of death. I think of all the countless missionaries who have gone into areas um, that we we, we can never even dream of what they look like. And they have been obedient and many of those missionaries, even their families, have been obedient to the point of death. The Christian life is a life of self-denial and suffering. But it's for a very good reason. Uh, Mark 35-37, through 37, you see these four, the number four, fours, the word four. Um, not that the number four is not a word, but you get what I'm saying. Um, Four, F-O-U-R, fours, F-O-R-S. And and Piper breaks each four of these fours down as a, he says they're they're, they're a um, support for the claim that Jesus makes, right? The claim that Jesus makes is, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You, as a Christian, you will have to do this. If you are a Christian, you will bear your cross. As if you are a Christian, you need to be prepared to face these different things. But Jesus, in His grace and His mercy, doesn't just leave us with that statement. He supports that statement. He gives us these four reasons, these, these fours. And so we'll, we'll just break each one of these down. In verse 35, um, we see Jesus say, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus presents us with this great paradox here. You want to save your life? You want to live a comfortable, happy life? You want to avoid this official persecution? You want to avoid this misplaced, unfair shame? You want to avoid this suffering? You're going to lose your life. But if you are willing to take this on, you'll save your life, right? The people that want, every, everybody wants to save their life. Everybody wants to save their life, but it kind of goes back to which category do you fall into? Are you Peter, focused on the things of man, or are you Jesus, focused on the things of God? If you're focused on the things of man, you will think that saving your life is enjoying every ounce of life that you can get from this world. But if you do that, you will lose your life. If you are like Jesus and you're focused on things of God, you will understand that every ounce of this world doesn't matter because it is what is to come. In verse 36, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
Jesus is saying, let's say you don't listen to that first reason. Let's say you suck up every single ounce of pleasure and comfort and, and everything you can get from this world. What does it profit you? <laughs> because at the end of the age, when you die, you can live the most comfortable, most luxurious life you want. When you die, it doesn't matter because you lose your soul. You'll be living in eternal separation from God. He's, he's, he's reasoning with us here. Jesus is being gracious. He's not just giving us a commandment, but he's giving us reasons for why he's giving us this commandment. Hey, pick up your cross and, and, and be willing to suffer with me because you will lose your life if you don't. We see another reason. Um, in verse 37. For what? can a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus has already set up the fact that we will lose our life and we will lose our soul if we do not join him and put our faith in him and join him in this suffering. And now he's saying it doesn't matter what, what, whatever happens in this world. Let's say you don't listen to these first two and, and you, you get every ounce of this. There's nothing that you get from this world that you can then trade for your soul. Your soul is gone. It's done. It doesn't matter. And, and I think sometimes we're think, we might be tempted to think like, oh, yeah, well, no, duh. Like, I can't trade my Bentley for my soul. Or I can't trade my house for my soul. Or, but let's think of it in more practical terms. Your good works, your church attendance, these actions that many times we, we as Christians think save us, don't save us. It's our faith in Christ that saves us. But if you hear are in this church and you think you are a good person and that you don't need Christ and I'm, I'm a good person, number one, I'm super pumped that you're here. Um, I want you to know that you need Jesus much as mu just as much as I need Jesus, right? And all those good works and the, and the things that make you a good person, you can't take to heaven and, and exchange it with Christ for your soul. And then in 38, we see this fourth four. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So he's saying that if you live in a way where you are ashamed of me, if you are ashamed of Christ, God will be ashamed of you. So think about this for a second. Think about where you work. Think about where you live. Think about the people that you interact with. Is there anyone in these circles that do not know you are a Christian? Is there anyone in these circles that do not know that you are a Christian? Why? Is it because you are ashamed of what goes along with being a Christian? Um, I'm, this made me think of when I worked right out of college, I worked at these camps in Dublin. And uh, there were two Christians that worked um, at, at this middle school where we ran these camps. And, one, the, the, and it was myself and then this other guy. And uh, what might possibly have felt like the biggest compliment then, I now look at as, as one of the biggest insults of my, of my life. And one of the things I'm most ashamed of. The other Christian, he, he was a little odd. He was a little goofy. Um, had some interesting way about going of things. But 
Everyone there knew he was a Christian. Everyone knew the truths that he believed. And he was not afraid to share those truths. I was a Christian, but I was kind of in the mindset of like, hey, Christians, like, like we, we should like be so integrated where people feel super comfortable around us. And, and like, we ne- like we may know the truth, but we don't have to like share our truth with them because we don't want to make them uncomfortable. Like maybe God will set up the perfect situation. And we were talking and one of the other counselors looked at me and was like, man, that other Christian dude, he's goofy. I was like, hey, I'm a Christian. He's like, yeah, but you're like the cool Christian. Like, I feel comfortable around you the way that I am. I was like left there like, dude, that's sweet. Like, I'm this cool Christian that pe- like non-Christians feel comfortable around. I don't think that's how it should be. I think we should love them. I think they should be, people that aren't Christians should feel extremely loved by us. They should feel extremely cared for us. We should be humble and, and approach them with humility, but approach them with truth. And they should know the truth that we believe. And that's not always going to be comfortable. Because the truth we believe is that if you are not a Christian, you are an extremely sinful person and you need Christ. That's not a comfortable thought. We're on a sinking ship. The ship's going down. We know the way to be saved. But if you don't abide by this, you're not going to be saved. That's not comfortable. I never want to operate in that realm again where I'm the cool Christian that's super comfortable. And in reality, I was that cool Christian because I was ashamed of some of the things that go along with being a Christian. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because if not, verse 35, you will lose your life. If not, verse 36, you'll lose your soul. If not... Verse 37, you can't get that soul back. And if not, verse 38, God will be ashamed of you. Jesus came and suffered many things so we could have life. Because of this, we also suffer so we will experience that life. If there's one thing that you can walk away from, if there's one thing that you can hear today, I hope that it is, It's okay to suffer. Christ suffered first. We follow Christ in that suffering. And this life is temporary. This life is not eternal. We have an eternity coming where everything is made right. And so we endure these sufferings in hope for that eternity. Eternity. Um, I'm going to pray. And then if you notice, it was a little shorter today. We do have baptisms today. Um, So Rob's going to come up and kind of set that up. But I'm going to pray. And... um, Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, Dear Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that Christ came and he suffered. God, as we go out into our jobs, into our workplace, um, into the spheres of influence that we have, we pray that we would not live ashamed of you. Uh, We pray that we would live open about the fact that we are Christians. We would live open about the truth that we know and that we would not be afraid of whatever that brings, whether it's official opposition, whether that's shame, whether that's suffering, or even death. God, help us to be obedient to even the point of death. God, convict us of ways that we are not living this way. Convict us of ways that we are not picking up our cross. God, convict us of ways 
when we see the potential aspects of suffering that we might face, we say, I'm okay. God, help us rather go into those knowing that you are with us, knowing that Christ suffered first, and that we follow Christ in his suffering. We love you, Lord. Thank you for who you are. Amen.